Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're going to be having a chat about the Roman Empire, the realm that emerged from the ashes of the Roman Republic after a series of civil wars caused the Republic to fall in 27 BCE. We talked about the Republic last week. Um, it's not 100% necessary to get across that episode in order to understand what's going on with this one. This isn't quite a sort of, you know, part one, part two situation here, but you still will get some in- important context when it comes to you know, what what the empire looked like when it was established by understanding the story of the Republic, its precursor. But we can remind ourselves quickly here um, of, uh, we'll give ourselves a brief history of, uh, of what happened during the Republic and the lead up to it becoming an empire. Rome began as a small city-state on the Italian peninsula, where today you find the city of Rome. Uh, it was one of many Italian city-states uh, centuries back before the Common Era uh, and started off as a kingdom initially, then eventually throughout the monarchy, replaced it with a republican system where two consuls would govern the realm alongside the Roman Senate. And uh, under this system, the republic expanded across the Italian peninsula and then beyond into northern Africa, into Greece and Macedon, uh, along the northern coast of the Mediterranean into Iberia. But eventually, uh, despite or perhaps because of all this growth, the republic was unable to maintain stability and order And from around halfway through the 2nd century BCE onwards, it was engulfed in internal conflict. And in this conflict, in all these civil wars, Julius Caesar emerged to become a key figure in Rome's transition from a republic to an empire, uh, as someone who gathered an enormous amount of political power for himself, power that had been previously spread out across many people throughout the republican government system. Now, Caesar was killed for this, of course. He was assassinated very famously. If you don't know the story behind that, episode 204, Julius Caesar, get across it. But he was he was assassinated by the Roman Senate. He was assassinated by senators who were worried that, that too much power was concentrated in Caesar's hands alone. But I'll tell you this, the Senate was swimming against the tide in killing Caesar, because even if Caesar didn't become an emperor, a few short years after his assassination, another man rose to concentrate all of Rome's political power in his hands, and so the Roman Empire was born. And this is where our story begins today, with the collapse of the Republic as the first Roman Emperor ascended to power. And then we'll go from there to follow the timeline of all of these Roman Emperors. We'll talk about some of the really important ones in detail, but otherwise we'll try to keep things pretty brisk as we talk about the highs and the lows of of the history of Imperial Rome. And then to wrap things up, We'll talk briefly about the collapse of the ancient Roman Empire and how it split and its successor states ultimately transitioned into the medieval period or didn't. Uh, A lot to get across today, of course, so let's get underway here and we'll talk about the history of the Roman Empire from go to woe, from its foundation to its collapse, off we go. So we're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 27 BCE. We're going to spend a very brief period before the Common Era, 27 years, in fact, and then we'll be uh, in, in the Common Era and counting years just as, as we do these days. But 27 BCE uh, was the year that the Roman Republic finally transformed into the Roman Empire when the Senate granted the grandnephew and adopted son of Julius Caesar, Octavian, the title of Augustus. Now, Augustus, roughly translated as illustrious, is uh, is not only the name that this bloke is known by to history, 
It also became the title granted to future emperors that followed Octavian along with Caesar. So this bloke, known as Octavian, right, became known as Augustus when he ultimately became the emperor. And then later on, this title Augustus was also given to future emperors. So it's a little confusing, but generally speaking, when you hear the word Augustus, it is referring to Caesar's grandnephew, his adopted son, Octavian, Octavian Augustus. Anyway, him being granted this title, Augustus, right, is generally considered by historians to be the point at which the final transition from republic to empire took place. But how was he granted, how and why was he granted this title? Well, as we touched upon last week, after Caesar's civil war, there was an unprecedented consolidation of political power in one person, Julius Caesar. And after his subsequent assassination, a massive struggle took place to fill this enormous power vacuum. And we talked about this in episode 191, Cleopatra, part two, get across it. Uh, She and her lover, Mark Antony, were heavily involved in attempting to fill this power vacuum, as was, of course, Octavian. But it was Octavian who beat Mark Antony, uh, defeated him in the Battle of Actium in 31 BCE. Mark Antony and Cleopatra committed suicide. Octavian seized Egypt. And there wasn't really anyone else who could stand in his way. And so by 27 BC, as I say, he is effectively the emperor. He has essentially unchallenged, reformed the Roman political system to further strengthen his own power. He has sidelined the Senate. He has consolidated the power of other governors and magistrates and and, and officials, all for himself instead. So he has personal authority over the entire Roman army. He simply disbanded any legions that he suspected might not remain loyal to him. And now with effectively absolute power over Rome, with no one to stand in his way and, and, and reject or, or uh, contest his authority, he's able to do whatever he wants to govern this realm in, in whatever way he sees fit. So what he did, Augustus divided up Rome's possessions into provinces. He assigned these provinces governors that he could directly control or indeed, indeed overrule should he choose to. And then did things like reform the tax system to give him direct control over much of the money that was coming in to the new imperial government's coffers. Previously during the Republic, different people would have held all of these powers. There would have been different regional power brokers controlling different parts of the Republic. There would have been people in charge of the money that was coming in and in charge of where it went and what it was spent on. But now Augustus has effectively gathered all of this power together for himself. And on top of all of this, right, on top of all this political and economic and military reform designed solely to empower him and his office, Augustus also went around and conquered new territories, which he then also had authority over. He conquered the last remaining parts of Iberia that had held out against the Romans. He sent his generals off to conquer the rest of Anatolia and northern Africa. He He oversaw northern pushes into what is today Germany and Austria and set what is what became more or less the permanent northern borders of the empire at the Rhine and Danube rivers. In short, Augustus didn't just establish the Roman Empire, he very clearly demonstrated how it was to be led by future emperors. His authority was largely unquestioned. He maintained peace and order throughout the realm, throughout his entire reign, and he oversaw a period of stability and prosperity while he was in charge. And this set the standard for future emperors. In time, as part of the inauguration ceremony for incoming emperors, the Senate would wish the incoming emperor to be more fortunate than Augustus and better than Trajan. 
we'll come to Trajan in a bit. He was another absolute pistol of an emperor. Don't worry about that. But this goes to show how effective and successful Augustus was as the first emperor of Rome. The peace and prosperity and stability that Augustus established as the first emperor lasted for 200 years, the so-called Pax Romana or Roman peace. Now, look, I'm not a fan of highly concentrated political power systems or imperialism or anything like that. But you've got to admit, Augustus was a very bloody good leader. And he deserves the credit. He did, Well, most of it anyway. I, I, will, I will say this, right? There is one factor here that he, he didn't really have all that much control over. He ended up having a, a pretty big slice of luck here. Something ended up going very, very well for him and, and ensured that his legacy was one of peace and prosperity and stability, uh, especially after such a long period of conflict and turmoil and civil war. And that is the fact that he lived for ages, ages and ages. He didn't die until 14 CE when he was 75 years old. He ruled the empire for over four decades. And this long reign, right, this long reign of a very effective leader was exactly what Rome needed in order to steady the ship and just enjoy a bit of a bit of a bit of stability after years and years of disorder. So Augustus, not trying to take anything away from him, an incredible leader. One of again, as I say, one of the most famous and important and successful leaders of the ancient world. But the fact that he lived until his seventies certainly helped in him establishing his legacy as one of the all-time great Roman emperors. Anyway, one of the interesting consequences of Augustus's long reign is the fact that he outlived. His grandchildren, all of whom died pretty young. Uh, And so he didn't have a son or a grandson to inherit the title of emperor. Instead, Augustus was succeeded by Tiberius, his stepson. And this began a period of imperial Roman history known as the Julio-Claudian dynasty. Uh, Augustus was of the Julian family, while Tiberius was of the the Claudia family, hence Julio-Claudian. Um, And the peace and the prosperity that Augustus had brought about during his reign continued into the reign of Tiberius, broadly speaking, that is. Tiberius did get a bit, he got a bit too paranoid towards the end of his reign and and probably executed just a a few too many people. Uh, But all the same, Rome remained relatively peaceful, relatively prosperous throughout uh, throughout the realm while Tiberius was in charge. Uh, And when Tiberius' nephew succeeded him as emperor in 37 CE, well... He was a breath of fresh air. He ended his uncle's systematic political persecutions. He stopped all the paranoid executions and then, um, well, then unfortunately fell into a spiral of mental illness and started doing things like appointing his horse as a high-ranking priest, lopping the heads off statues of gods and replacing them with likenesses of his own and sleeping with basically anyone and everyone, including apparently his own sisters. Does this sound familiar to you? I am, of course, talking about Caligula, the mad Roman emperor, episode 33, get across it. Long-time listeners will remember this bloke all too well. Uh, Caligula, he didn't last long. People got sick of his antics, ended up assassinating him in 41 CE, and so he was replaced with Claudius, uh, Caligula's uncle, who was proclaimed by the powerful Praetorian Guard, the bodyguard of the emperor, Except they hadn't done a very good job guarding Caligula, because not only had they not protected him from death, they had been the ones that killed him. So, um, yeah, didn't didn't really fulfil the job description there, the Praetorian Guard. Anyway, Claudius did a pretty good job of things. He wasn't paranoid or bonkers. Uh, he built stuff. He expanded Roman territory, most notably further into Britain. Great job, Claudius. Uh, but then he did execute his wife when she cheated on him and then married his niece. So... 
there is that, I suppose, as part of his legacy. Anyway, uh, after Claudius came Nero, who, as you might know, has quite a bad reputation in history. He almost certainly didn't fiddle while Rome burned, as you'll remember from episode 130, historical origins, popular sayings, get across it. But what he did do, rather more positively, uh, is a, he did a good job of building things, just like his adoptive father Claudius, uh, particularly, particularly cultural buildings. Start off with things like theatres, great, fantastic, love that, and then ended up with absurd, opulent palaces after the Great Fire of Rome. So, yeah, went off, went off the deep end a little bit there. He spent way too much money and ruined Rome's finances. Uh, although he did see off Boudicca's Rebellion in Britain, episode 42, get across it. All the same, by the end of his reign, he was absolutely hated, uh, ended up killing himself in the year 68 CE because uh, the Senate was threatening to execute him. So he beat them to the punch. Nero had no heirs when he died. He was only 30 years old when he died, had no heirs. And so Rome had, just as a little treat, a bit more civil war in the years 68 and 69, the so-called Year of the Four Emperors, which involved, can you guess? Yes, indeed. Four emperors, one after the other in the space of a year. Galba, Otho and Vitellus came and went. Galba was killed by the Praetorian Guard. Another, another emperor's death by the hand of the Praetorian Guard. Uh, Otho killed himself and Vitello was overthrown by a fellow called Vespasian, the fourth of the four emperors of this year. Came to power in 69, beginning the Flavian dynasty. The Flavian dynasty was brief but important. Remembered for economic prosperity, vast building projects and continued expansion of Roman territory. And Vespasian didn't muck about. He was an old general, uh, and as soon as he came to power, he weakened the uh, the role that the Senate played in Roman politics. He consolidated more political power for the office of emperor and maintained a good deal of support from the military, being, as I say, an old general. And as threatening as all of, the, all of that sounds, right, building up a, an autocratic system of government for himself, disempowering his, uh, his, uh, his political rivals and, and building up his support within the military, as, uh, as ominous as that may come across as being, I'm happy to say that Vespasian was actually great. He was really good. He balanced the books after the excesses of emperors like Nero. He built up considerable savings in the empire's coffers and enthusiastically promoted modernization and urbanization throughout the empire. It was under Vespasian that construction on one of Rome's most famous landmarks began, the Colosseum, still standing today, or most of it anyway, uh, immensely famous building, and, and it was Vespasian who began its construction. And on top of this, he still found time to campaign and expand the empire's borders. Vespasian, look at you go, mate. Definitely uh, one, of, one of Rome's better emperors at this stage. He was followed by his son Titus, who was also pretty bloody good emperor. Uh, not only did he oversee the, uh, the construction and uh, the completion of the Colosseum, after Mount Vesuvius erupted in, uh, in 79 and destroyed the city of Pompeii, Titus sprang into action. He spent freely to rebuild the city and help those who had survived the devastation. Uh, and he dealt with another disaster as well the next year in 80, uh, in the year 80 when Rome underwent another big fire. Uh, and so his crisis management, his leadership in a crisis, fantastic. He did a very good job, Titus, very popular emperor. Uh, but his rule was cut short, sadly. After just two years, he died after falling ill with a fever at the age of just 41. His brother, Domitian, su succeeded him in the year 81 and, broadly speaking, followed in his, father's, uh, in his father Vespasian's footsteps, to begin with, at least. He uh, ran balanced books, he built plenty of stuff, he fought Rome's enemies, uh, and he kept the, uh, the people of the empire happy. Uh, however, as he got 
older, he did become bitter and then paranoid. Uh Uh-oh, here come the needless executions again. Yes, Domitian went around going after anyone he thought had it in for him, which was, uh, well, I don't know, basically everyone really. And so in the grand tradition of powerful Roman statesmen, he was assassinated once again by the Praetorian Guard, for they facilitated rather than impeded the death of yet another emperor. You, you guys have got one job. You've got one job, fellas. One single job. Come on. Anyway, as we move now into the second century CE, uh, we move on from the brief Flavian dynasty and into the Nerva Antonine dynasty. And famously, this dynasty involved a period of imperial Roman history known as the time of the five good emperors. I tell you what, imagine being one of those five. That'd be sick, especially if you especially if you weren't all that good, but still got kind of you know, lumped in with the other four who were overachievers. Uh, like that one person in a group project at uni who never did any work, but just got carried by everyone else. Anyway, five good emperors. Good emperor number one, Nerva. Um, he didn't stick around for too long, just two years. Uh, but he spent those two years undoing all of the awful stuff that Domitian had done. Uh, he released political prisoners. He returned confiscated property and generally did a, a pretty good job, I would say, overall of restoring the good name of the office of Roman emperor. However, there were a couple of areas where he was very deficient, Nerva. There were some challenges that he faced in his short reign. One, very unpopular with the military. The military did not like Nerva at all, including the Praetorian Guard, which, I mean, if you're a Roman emperor and the Praetorian Guard isn't a fan of you, you're in, uh, you're in deep poop, mate, as we've seen from several of the others who uh, had their lives cut short by the people who were supposed to be guarding them. But the second problem that Nerva faced was that he didn't have an heir. He was old, he was childless, and the people of Rome were clamouring for him to provide an heir to make sure that there would be a stable, secure, and peaceful transition of power once he died. Now, Nerva very cleverly managed to kill two birds with one stone here because he adopted as his son and heir a bloke whose name was Trajan. Oh yeah, here he comes, this bloke, right? Very successful and well-liked soldier. This guy was essentially a general, I think it's fair to say. And him being adopted as the heir of Nerva, this meant that it not only brought the military on side with the, for, for the rest of Nerva's reign, it also meant that the people, people of Rome were happy that there would be this orderly transition of power that they wanted so much. They didn't want the realm to fall back into infighting and civil war and turmoil and all the rest of it. So... When Nerva died in the year 98, there was this smooth succession that people had been hoping for. And as a result, the year 98 was the year, exalted listener, that one of the all-time greats came to power in Rome. Imperator Kaiser Nerva Traianus Augustus, better known to history as Trajan. This guy was absolutely terrific. Have a listen to this. First and foremost... Trajan is uh, is most famous for his conquests. He planned out and undertook an invasion of Dacia, uh, an old uh, enemy of Rome's who kept giving the Romans grief. He, cropped, he crossed the Danube and gave the Dacians an absolute hiding. He imposed strict peace conditions on them. And when the Dacians started acting up again, he went back and gave them another thrashing and captured their capital. Massive dub for him. Huge. Absolutely huge. Uh, 123 days of celebrating and feasting uh, with the Dacians defeated. People are absolutely loving Trajan for this. 
But it didn't stop there. He invaded Armenia when the king there defied the power-sharing agreement in, in place with Rome. Uh, he put the Armenians in their place. He then marched on the Parthian Empire, added much of Mesopotamia to the empire, uh, and then pushed further eastward, further eastward than any Roman leader had before. And uh, it was during Trajan's rule as a result of all this conquest that the Roman Empire reached its territorial peak. It became, it reached its largest point in terms of total land area. While Trajan was emperor, right, so vast was the Roman Empire that while Trajan was emperor, it was possible to travel in modern terms from Britain to Morocco, from Belgium to Egypt, from Portugal to Iraq, all while remaining within the boundaries of the Roman Empire. So Trajan won a huge amount of glory and prestige, as you can imagine, from fighting and conquest. But that's just the start of his story, because all of this conquest made Rome very, very rich indeed. And Trajan put much of that wealth, where you'd expect, right, into massive building and infrastructure projects. Trajan's Forum, Trajan's Column in Rome. The column's still there. You can go and see it today. Trajan's Bridge, the first ever bridge built across the Danube River. For a thousand years, it was the longest and widest arch bridge in history. He rebuilt the mighty Circus Maximus for the chariot races that he and the people of, of Rome loved so much. Romans loved a spectacle and, and Trajan provided them. But do you know what else he provided? Not just one, but both halves of the famous idiom, bread and circuses. And this is why I'm such a big fan of him. After enriching Rome with conquest, Trajan returned and distributed this wealth to those who needed it. He had a formalised welfare system in place for Rome's poor. He had food support programs, debt relief programs, education subsidisation programs, all of these progressive and forward-thinking social policies that were excellent for the empire and its people. Trajan's welfare program, known as Alimenta, stayed in place for almost 200 years. Now, it never expanded to encompass all of the empire's poor and needy, it has to be said, but it was still an excellent piece of social policy in a time when this sort of thing was not necessarily common at all. So some of Trajan's ideas came along well ahead of their time, and I'm a big fan of him as a result, as you can tell. But all good things must come to an end, and Trajan's reign came to its end in 117, when he died, leaving the empire, as I say, at its largest ever size. He was succeeded by his adopted son, Hadrian, whose name uh, you might recognise from Hadrian's Wall, the wall that spanned Britain from east to west to defend Roman-controlled Britain from northern incursions. And it's very appropriate that a defensive bulwark is what Hadrian is best remembered for, as his main focus wasn't on expansion like Trajan, but on the defence and the management of the territory that Rome had already acquired. And with this in mind, Hadrian gave up on many Roman possessions in Mesopotamia. He considered fighting for them to be futile and so just ended up essentially giving them away. Uh, in other places, he put down rebellions and revolts, such as the Bar Kokhba re revolt in the 130s, big Jewish uprising. So you can imagine he wasn't as popular as Trajan, uh, as he was much more interested in consolidation than conquest. But Hadrian was probably one of the most well-travelled Roman emperors. He visited much of his realm throughout his reign uh, before ultimately dying in 138. He was replaced by his adopted son. The good, uh, the good emperors were all, all about adopted sons. Uh, and this brings us to good emperor number four, 
Antoninus Pius, right? Antoninus Pius enjoyed a relatively peaceful reign, no major rebellions or revolts like under Hadrian. Um, but also, like Hadrian, he didn't really go on the march to conquer. He did attempt to build another wall further north in Britain, the Antonine Wall. It was ultimately abandoned. Um, but Antonine, Antoninus Pius also left Rome much richer than he found it. Uh, when he died in 161, he was succeeded by two of his adopted sons, not just the one, uh, Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. They ruled as co-emperors for a while. Uh, this is the first time ever that Rome had had two emperors, might be the last, uh, but poor old Lucius Verus, he's not, he's not actually counted amongst the, the five good emperors, sadly for him. Uh, he died before his brother, and so he missed out on the label. Marcus Aurelius, on the other hand, is considered as the fifth and last of the five good emperors. Unlike the last few emperors, however, um, who enjoyed relatively peaceful reigns, Marcus Aurelius, he had to get stuck in in a major way because the Parthian Empire rose up to fight the Romans. The Kingdom of Armenia did the same. There was unrest along the northern border of the empire. Uh, and so we're, we're back to a period of significant conflict. And to make things worse, there was a pandemic of all things that Marcus Aurelius had to deal with. Not an easy task, as we all know from bloody personal experience. Uh, this pandemic was either measles or smallpox. Whatever it was, it devastated the Roman population from 165 onwards. It killed an estimated 10% of the empire's population, and it might have actually been what killed Lucius Verus. But the bottom line is this. With wars and conflicts and pandemics dominating Roman politics at this time, uh, it really does look like the Pax Romana, the Roman peace, that had been in place since the rule of Augustus almost 200 years ago, it looked like this was finally coming to an end. And when Marcus Aurelius died in the year 180, it wasn't an adopted son, but a biological one that, that succeeded him as emperor and well and truly brought about the end of the Pax Romana. This emperor's name was Commodus. While Commodus is still part of the Nerva Antonine dynasty that is so famous for producing the five good emperors, there is a reason that they stopped at five and that we don't refer today to the six good emperors. Should have stuck with adoptive sons because the first direct hereditary succession in a hundred years ended in absolute disaster. Commodus was an awful emperor, paranoid and cruel. He created a cult of personality and ruled with an iron fist and didn't rule well either. The Pax Romana well and truly ended under Commodus's rule with conflict and uprisings and food shortages and executions defining his rule, as well as him doing some things that really didn't reflect well on the office, were considered by, by most in Rome to be beneath him as emperor. For instance, his love of dressing up and getting into the gladiatorial ring himself. Wouldn't you know it? He never lost a bout as everyone surrendered to him because he was, you know, the emperor. But he didn't just fight people. He fought wild and exotic animals in the ring. Apparently, he killed over 100 lions and at one point an ostrich. He took the ostrich's head over to some spectating senators, holding it out to them as if to threaten them and say, you're next. But rather than be intimidated, the senators had to stifle their laughter. So Commodus, apart from being quite a ridiculous man, was a pretty useless emperor, I'd say. Anyway, won't surprise you to learn he was assassinated, not by the Praetorian Guard this time. No, he was strangled in the bath by a wrestler. You know, pretty, pretty unremarkable death, really. 
Uh, But his death plunged the empire into chaos. 193 is known as the year of not the four emperors, but the five emperors. We have to do one better this time, don't we? I mean, what's what's next? The year of the six emperors? Come on. We all like a bit of a laugh here, but... But don't, don't be ridiculous. If there's, there, there is a Year of the Six Emperors coming, coming up, don't worry about that. Anyway, yes. Year of the Five Emperors, five different blokes all stoushing to be emperor. Pertinax, Didius Julianus, uh, Piscanius Niger, Claudius Albinus, and then at the end of them, Septimius Severus. Civil War came to Rome once again. An absolute mess it was, although at the end of it, Septimius Severus, after emerging victorious, after fighting off his rivals, he did manage to restore a, a modicum of, uh, of stability and order to the empire once again. And this brings us to the Severan dynasty. Now that we've wrapped up the Nerva Antonine dynasty, the five good emperors, the one awful one and the one that doesn't usually get counted all that much. Sorry, Lucius Verus, mate. Uh, the Severan dynasty uh, was famous for expansion like the early Nerva Antonine dynasty. But unfortunately, these wars fought by the uh, the Severan dynasty, they were expensive. And so rather than enriching the empire as they had before, this time these wars nearly bankrupted it. In any case, under Severus, the empire expanded once again, just as it had under Trajan, although not to the same total extent. Uh, in 198, five years into Severus's reign, he elevated his elder son Caracalla to become co-emperor with him. And then in 209, he did the same thing with his younger son, Gita. So uh, Rome had three emperors at one point, far too many. And Caracalla seemed to agree that it was far too many because after Severus died in 211, Caracalla had Gita murdered that same year. Obviously, big believer in there just being one single emperor. And so one single emperor there was from that year onwards. Caracalla was uh, not actually his name. It was a nickname given to this bloke. It referred to the fact that he always wore a hooded tunic even to bed, apparently. I mean, what is, what is this guy from Assassin's Creed? Um, but given that he had his brother murdered, you probably won't be surprised to learn that Caracalla was a bit of a nasty pasty. Assassinations and executions, as well as some pretty middling military campaigns. Uh, this guy, he, he wasn't a very good emperor. He was assassinated too, as it turns out, in 217. And you'll never guess, you'll never guess who did it. It, it. it wasn't the hidden ones from the hit video game series Assassin's Creed. No, it was, surprise, surprise, a different group of people with considerable expertise in murdering Roman emperors. Yes, indeed, the Praetorian Guard. But in a surprise twist that you might expect, not from ancient Rome, but from, I don't know, the bloody WWE, it was then the captain of the Praetorian Guard, Macrinus, who declared himself emperor after killing Caracalla. He didn't last long, admittedly, only around a year, uh, despite he and his son uh, Diadumenian, who he elevated to co-emperor, despite them only ruling for a year, they still are counted as Roman emperors, even if they weren't particularly long-standing ones. But but um, this bloke, Macrinus, he made the mistake, he made the very, very preventable mistake, I would have thought, of not paying his troops Generally speaking, a bad move, I would say, and so his troops instead supported a different emperor, a new emperor going back to the Severan dynasty. Uh, this this young kid was said to be the secret son of Caracalla, but was actually his, I think this is right, first cousin once removed. I had to do some very careful analysis of the family tree to figure that one out. I think that's correct. Anyway, this young emperor, right, once he took power, he was, like most teenagers are, he was absolutely obsessed with sex, never really grew out of it. He was a proper dirty boy. And uh, just as with Caligula, longtime fans of half-assed history will remember him all too well, Elagabalus, 
Rome's Dirty Emperor, episode 58, Get Across It. So much going on with Elagabalus. He was an absolute wild thing, rooting everything in sight, men and women alike, overthrew the religious orthodoxy of the empire, decadent, over-the-top, promiscuous as hell, might have been a prostitute there for a while too. Uh, not the sort of thing you'd expect from a Roman emperor. Uh, and poor old Elagabalus, he burned hot and bright and was... Once again, assassinated by the Praetorian Guard. One job, guys. One bloody job. Anyway, I do recommend you go and have a listen to the to the episode on Elagabalus. Uh, very interesting indeed. Very entertaining and also quite a tragic tale. Uh, Elagabalus is one of history's earliest potential transgender figures. A lot going on with his story there. Anyway... After Elagabalus came Severus Alexander, uh, his cousin, uh, and he did a much better job of steadying the ship and returning some order to the empire with the help of his very politically competent mum, Julia Avita Mamea. But neither Severus Alexander or his mum were able to weather the storm that Rome was headed towards. The empire by now had destabilised so badly that it was essentially falling apart at the seams. In 235, when Severus Alexander was murdered by his own troops during a campaign in Germania, it was the beginning of a very dark time in Roman history. The Roman Empire fell into a period of great decline from 235 onwards, and for the next half a century, it would be overtaken by disorder, conflict, and chaos. And it's here in the story that we actually have to stop our emperor-by-emperor approach to the tale of the Roman Empire. So far, we've covered every single one. We've name-checked them all up to Severus Alexander, uh, even if, you know, some of them only got a very brief mention. Sorry, Lucius Verus, mate. Um, But the simple reason that we're not going to be able to do this from here on out is because, mate, there are so bloody many emperors from this period onwards. In the 50-year period known as the crisis of the third century, Rome had almost 30 blokes claim to be emperor. This is in contrast to the Nerva Antonine dynasty, for instance, which lasted roughly twice as long and had a grand total of seven emperors. So no more name checks. Sorry, all you 30 or so fellas. Should have done a better job in holding on to power and then you would have made it into the episode. Um, But no, let's talk about the crisis of the third century uh, and I'll begin by telling you how uh, in the year 238, a few years into the crisis, um, this year was in fact known as, I mentioned it before, the year of the six emperors. Six emperors in one year, unbelievable. I mean, this should illustrate to you that this was a period of great turmoil and disarray throughout the entire empire. Civil wars, rebellions, uprisings, invasions, mass migration, and a new emperor every every bloody week, it seems like. On top of that, there was another pandemic. Again, possibly smallpox or measles. There was economic collapse. There were food shortages. There was near total instability across the realm, both politically and socially, because, simply put, the empire was just too big to function. It had grown too large to be governed by one single centralised power. And in that vein, during this time, Roman military leaders became almost like independent regional warlords as they commanded their own loyal legions. And on top of this, the enemies of Rome jumped at the chance to assert themselves. For instance, in the year 270, the great Queen Zenobia of the Palmyrene Empire used this opportunity to attempt to throw off the Roman yoke, and she came very damn close to achieving her own outright independence from Rome. For more on that, episode 36, get across it. Absolutely fascinating story about one of the most powerful women in ancient history. 
But it was around the time of Queen Zenobia that the Romans finally managed to begin to get it back together. In the 270s, the Emperor Aurelian managed to subdue many of the uprisings against Rome, like Zenobia's, and brought the Palmarines, the Persians, the Visigoths, the Vandals, and the Gauls back under Roman authority. And then, in 285, the famous Emperor Diocletian began his reign, and he was able to restore proper, lasting stability to the Roman Empire, securing its borders, defeating its enemies, casting out pretenders and usurpers, and undertaking some truly radical reforms to attempt to fix the empire's issues and keep it intact. And the most important reform that Diocletian undertook was to split the empire up so as to make it easier to govern. And this was the direct precursor to what happened a century or so later in 395, when the empire was officially and formally split into two different realms, the East Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire. Diocletian's reforms and the massive bureaucracy that he created to support them did stabilise the empire and saw it survive the crisis of the 3rd century, but the Roman Empire would never be the same again. In 305, Diocletian became the first Roman emperor to voluntarily leave the position. He retired to grow vegetables in what is today Croatia, and his palace there actually ended up uh, growing into the modern city of Split. And... uh, In 311, after Diocletian died, well, wouldn't you know it, there was another period of civil war as people fought to seize power. He had subdivided the realm to make it easier to govern, as I mentioned, and uh, there was a long and convoluted power struggle as the people who were put in charge of these subdivisions fought each other for power over the, uh, for authority over the entire empire. And uh, during this power struggle, there is one very important and very famous name that came to define this era in Roman history, Constantine. After dealing with his political rivals in the wake of Diocletian's death, which, which included him executing his own son, Constantine rose to become a preeminently powerful and massively influential person, not just in Roman history, but in world history. And here's why. Ever since the life of Jesus of Nazareth, a popular Roman pastime was, of course, the persecution of Christians, as well as the persecution of Jews and anyone else they didn't really like all that much. Prior to Constantine, persecuting Christians had been part of the course in Rome. But when Constantine converted to Christianity, he began a radical religious transformation throughout the entire Roman Empire. Constantine not only enforced religious tolerance for Christians, but also oversaw the immensely important First Council of Nicaea in 325, which led to the defining statement of belief for Christianity, the Nicene Creed. This is a foundational creed of mainstream Christianity, even today. And so Constantine had a massive effect on the development of what would go on to become, in today's age, the world's largest religion. And on top of this unbelievably important impact on world history, Constantine also got a bunch of other stuff done. He undertook currency reform with the gold solidus, a coin that would define European coinage for a thousand years. He undertook military reform that further stabilised the empire, and he also significantly built himself a palace in the old Greek city of Byzantium and renamed the city New Rome, but then later re-renamed it Constantinople. And that city, 
A colossally important city in world history is, of course, today's Istanbul in Turkey, thrust into global significance for the first time all the way back in the 4th century. Constantinople and later Istanbul would develop to become one of history's most important metropolises, the capital of the Byzantine Empire, a place where the course of world history was ultimately decided, as we've talked about on the show, episode 222, Fall of Constantinople, get across it. And all of this was because of this one guy, Constantine, an overpoweringly influential person in world history, but even his far-reaching reforms couldn't save the Roman Empire from its ultimate fate. After his death in 337, more infighting and more turmoil plagued the empire as his surviving sons, Constantine, Constantius and Constans, what is going on there, uh, they squabbled over the way that their dad had divided the empire between them. They and some subsequent emperors continued the religious transformation begun by Constantine uh, until by the end of the 4th century, non-Christian belief had been outlawed. Old temples were converted into churches, schools and universities were closed. A sorry state of affairs, but that's just one part of the whole story. Because, once again, emperors were plentiful. Their reigns short and unstable, and as a result, the empire continued its decline, shrinking in power, prestige, and most notably, in size. Despite there being two administrative centres within the empire, one in the east and one in the west, Romans at the time didn't really consider the empire to be divided. Not really. In the wake of Diocletian subdividing the empire in this way, it was still considered to be one overarching realm. However, the fact that this change made in the name of uh, administrative convenience effectively broke the empire in two, it meant as we get to the back half of the 4th century, this division between East and West, it became more and more pronounced. Barbarian invasions increased in number and magnitude, and this forced the two halves of the empire to start to deal with them separately rather than together. Barbarians, rebels, social and religious upheaval, these were not easy times throughout the Roman Empire, and it was only a matter of time before the whole thing imploded on itself, and the empire finally fell to infighting. In 392, Eastern Emperor Theodosius refused to recognise the the legitimacy or the authority of those in the West, and so invaded. East Rome invaded West Rome. Theodosius emerged victorious, and for one last fleeting moment, the empire was united once more under a single uncontested emperor. But it would be the very last time in history that Rome would have a single emperor, In 395, Theodosius died, and he divided the empire between his sons, Arcadius and Honorius. Arcadius became the emperor in the east, and Honorius became the emperor in the west, and so, finally, once and for all, the Roman Empire, as a single, unified political body, was undone. From 395 onwards, the empire would forever be divided between the Eastern Roman Empire and the Western Roman Empire, each with their own emperor and their own destiny. And these destinies were very, very different. The Western Roman Empire fell once and for all in 476 after continued incursions from invaders like the Huns, episode 169, Attila the Hun, get across it. And its fate was sealed after the 476 Battle of Ravenna, when the barbarian Odoacer overthrew the last emperor in the West, the 10-year-old Romulus Augustulus. 
And today, 476 is considered by many historians to be the year that the ancient era ended and the medieval era began. So great was the influence of the Western Roman Empire on history. This is admittedly a rather Eurocentric view to take, but hey, it's history, so what's new? The cultural impact of the Roman Empire on the Western world is impossible to understate. Even the languages popularly spoken across much of Europe all have heavy influence from Latin, the language spoken in Rome. Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, French, and other Romance languages, they're not called that because they're all lovey-dovey and romantic. No, they're called that because they come from the language of Rome, the Roman language, Roman, Romance. In the East, however, The Eastern Roman Empire continued on a lot longer than the Western one did, a thousand years longer. Today, however, we don't know it as the Eastern Roman Empire. We call it the Byzantine Empire. But the Byzantines never called themselves that. No, they were just Romans, like their forebears. That's what they called themselves for the rest of their history, despite them being, you know, Greek, not Roman, culturally, linguistically. The Byzantines were Greek. But, you know, look, they're far from the only people in history to claim themselves as Romans. The Frankish Charlemagne was proclaimed Emperor of the Romans. The German Holy Roman Empire kept that appellation despite being neither holy nor Roman. And after the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople, the Islamic sultans there, they called themselves Caesars of Rome. And even words like Tsar in Russian come from the word Caesar. Anyway, the the Eastern Roman Empire, it fared much better than its Western counterpart. It grew to become one of the most powerful realms in medieval history. It controlled a vast expanse of territory, although obviously nowhere near our boy Trajan. And it dominated political affairs as Europe transitioned from late antiquity into the early medieval period. There is far too much to get across here when it comes to the Byzantine or the Eastern Roman Empire. It's another story in and of itself, but it did last a very, very long time, almost a thousand years longer than the Western Roman Empire. But it too fell. And the 1453 fall of Constantinople, once again, episode 222, get across it. This brought about the final end of the Roman Empire's direct descendants, as young Sultan Mehmed II of the Ottoman Empire captured the city and destroyed the final vestige of the realm whose origins dated back 2,000 years. So even if you won't find it on a map, Rome has an incalculable legacy, both as a republic and as an empire. This legacy has defined the history of Europe and, more broadly, the Mediterranean. The world as we know it would be unrecognisably different had it not been for the dominance of Rome throughout so much of its history. The language, religion, culture, law, architecture, politics, and everything else that have made the Western world what it is today can all be traced back, at least in part, to Rome. In the Western world, the buildings that we live and work in, the roads and the bridges that we drive on, the laws that we follow, the very words that we speak, all owe their existence in the forms that they take today to Rome. Roman history is absolutely inescapable when addressing European history. And European history is, for better or worse, inescapable when addressing world history. So, from a city on a hill near a river, 
to one of the most resoundingly impactful realms in history. Rome is, to this day, a colossally important part of the story of human civilization. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is at least a an appreciable fraction of the story of the Roman Empire. It's one of those things that you... I mean, you could do an entire podcast on on the empire, just, even just periods of its history. It's so There's so much to get across uh, with, uh, with the story of this enormously important uh, realm in, 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 as I say, the, the history of, of world civilization. But uh, hopefully... We learn a thing or two from this episode. Hopefully, we've got a little bit of a better understanding of uh, of the Roman Empire. In any case, it's been my great pleasure to have your company this week. We'll be back next week with more nonsense on half us history. Uh, don't forget, of course, quarter us history should be on your feed. If it's not, let me know. I do need to know if there are still some uh, some problems when when it comes to the feeds. But uh, quarter us history should be there, interspersed between the regular episodes. Do hope you're enjoying it. Give it a crack if you haven't had a listen. It's um. It's, oh, look, I don't want to don't want to blow my own, own horn too much, but it's it's good fun. I enjoy making it. it. They're pretty funny, silly episodes, so have a listen to them. But uh, let me know what you think too. Halfhousehistory.net contact form there for feedback or for topic suggestions. Always good to hear from people. And if you want to support the show, all the usual ways: merch available, Patreon.com/slash/halfhousehistory for uncut episodes, behind the scenes stuff, whatever else. Early access to shows, of course, very important, and uh, ad free listening uh, only available over there at Patreon. But thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you to all the people who are out there spreading the good word of the show. Uh, it's great to have you uh, supporting me in, in such a, a very, very important way. The show has grown to levels I never thought would ever be possible. And I'm, I'm so deeply appreciative of everyone who's helped me get there. And uh, long may it continue. I hope to make this show for a very, very long time to come. Maybe not quite as long as the Roman Empire stuck around, but we'll see how we go. Anyway. That is that. Going to close things out, of course, the, as ever with a question posed on Reddit. This one comes to us from Redditor Ebonza, who asks, How much lettuce did Roman emperors actually eat? <laughs> <laughs>